Tonight, I'm going to talk about the four protective meditations. Our spiritual path is often compared to a long journey, and this journey has begun a long, long time ago, such a long time ago that a beginning is inconceivable. The end, or the goal, however, can be reached under certain uh, circumstances. This path of this, the path of this journey winds its way through the jungle of the defilements up to the clear and pleasant abode of Nibbana. The journey through the different existences is called samsara. Samsara is the cycle of birth and death fueled by attachment and desire. And so with the cessation of attachment and desire, the cycle of of birth and death can be brought to an end. And so with this, we can bring to an end the journey in samsara. On the, light, on the night of his enlightenment, the Buddha developed the ability to remember his past life. So he knew exactly in which family he was born, what his name was, or what or how he earned his livelihood. So after receiving the prophecy from the Buddha Dipankara that he would become a Buddha in the future, he had to develop and cultivate all the necessary qualities um, for his enlightenment. And this took a long, long time. It said it was four incalculables and a hundred thousand worlds. And due to the Buddha's omniscience, he could not only remember his own past lives, but he also knew all the past lives of all living beings. The Buddha was often asked why a certain event was happening to a person now. And so then the Buddha, with his omniscient power, looked into the past existences of that person, and so he found the cause to be a certain action that that person did in the past and of which the person was experiencing the result. Our journey in in samsara has already lasted for such a long, long time 
that we have already forgotten many things. And so we continue to be lost in the same lowlands. We uh, come back to the same places time and again. Because we have no map, we have lost our orientation. And having no compass, we cannot get the right direction. With a map and a compass, it would definitely be easier to get out of the jungle. And on top of that, it would be helpful to have some provisions of food and drink so that we don't have to starve. And to ward off the dangers of the jungle, to ward off the wild animals or the demons, it would be good to have some protection or to have some weapons to defend ourselves. Being well equipped would be much easier to uh, face the dangers in the jungle and to ward these dangers off. So, if we want to be well equipped for this adventurous journey, then we should have a map and a compass so that we do not lose track and that we do not lose the direction. And provisions of food and drink provide us with with the necessary strength and energy. And some weapons would be helpful to protect ourselves from the wild beasts of the jungle. So, in the same way as there are wild beasts out there in the jungle, so there are countless demons living in the dark corners of our minds. And these demons, they just wait for suitable occasions to come out and attack us. Sometimes they come disguised, and in their disguise they try to create um, frightening visions or sounds. And if our mind is untrained, then we have no way to defend ourselves, so we become uh, a victim to these demons. For the victim, for the demons, however, they can have a feast, because then they can devour the victim without much resistance. Travelers on the samsara trip are often not aware of these attacks by the demons. Indulging in the various forms of sense pleasures, they do not know anymore when one or several of these demons are attacking them. Attachment and desire, they nurture mental insensitivity and mental dullness, which intensifies during our trip in samsara. It is this mental insensitivity or dullness that leads us again and again into death. And we will die many more times if we do not decide 
to do something against it. The following story, which is a true story, illustrates this um, attachment the, to the desires and the resulting dullness of the mind or insensitivity of the mind. About three years ago, the younger sister of a volunteer in our meditation center in Burma, she died of a snake bite. That sister still lived with her parents in Little Burma, in, in a rural area, and it was quite a poor area. The parents, as well as other families of that village, they didn't have any means to get a TV or other means of entertainment. But they had a village center and sometimes a film was played for the people or the adults of that village and of that area. So one afternoon this sister was among the children who were fascinated by the story of the film and who was enjoying this rare form of entertainment. So immersed in the flow of the story, she didn't react to a bite on her back, thinking that it was a mosquito or some other kind of bug. But unfortunately, it wasn't a mosquito or another insect, but it was a venomous snake. And after a few hours, she died. Normally, the demons of the mind do not cause such a quick death. It's rather a process that is going on over many, many years. It's a slow death. And at the same time, it's a process that goes on as long as the obscuration of the mind are not completely removed. Therefore, a good equipment for our spiritual journey is of great importance. In the same way as we take a mat, a compass, some food and drinks, and some uh, weapons to protect ourselves when we go on an expedition, in the same way we need the four protective meditations for our spiritual journey. These four protective meditations, they can give us the direction, they provide us with energy and strength, and they protect us from any danger or harm. So these four protective meditations, they are, the first of them, is the recollection of the attributes of the Buddha. In Pali it's called Buddha Nusati. The second is Metta meditation, the meditation on loving kindness. In Pali, Metta Bhavana. The third one is the recollection of the loathsomeness of the body. 
and in Pali it's called Asuba Bhavana. And the last one of these four protective meditations is the recollection on death or Maranusati. These four protective meditations they are like a fence to protect the young plants. A fence holds uh, wards off uh, rabbits or other animals and so then the young plants can grow and become strong plants. Or they are like an armor which protects the soldier from the deadly arrows of the enemy. So the first of these um, recollections, the recollection of the Buddha's attribute, increases our confidence and strengthens our faith that liberation is possible for all living beings. The second of these protective meditations, Mitta meditation, can greatly reduce the fires of anger, hatred and ill will. And it's the development of a benevolent feeling towards all living beings. The third one, the recollection on the loathsomeness of the body, can greatly reduce and even uh, eradicate our attachment to our body. And it also can strengthen our commitment to renunciation. And the fourth one, the recollection on death, that leads to a feeling of spiritual urgency, to the realization that we need to do something about our state and that we do need to do it now. So all these different qualities are very important on our spiritual journey. They help us to um, engage in a spiritual practice, not to waver, not to give up. Uh, they help us to keep going. So the first of them, the recollection of the Buddha's attribute, increases our confidence that the goal or the end of our journey can actually be reached. With his example, the Buddha showed that it is possible to put an end to all of our defilements and that the goal of liberation can actually be reached. And with that, one can put an end to the journey in samsara. And many of the disciples of the Buddha followed in his steps and they also reached the final goal of the journey. The Buddha is endowed with nine qualities or attributes which distinguish him from other beings. We can say that the Buddha with his uh, enlightenment that this is the full potentiality of our human mind. 
as all the traces of greed, hatred and ignorance have been completely eradicated with no residue left, the mind is pure and clear. So the Buddha brought the human mind to a state of complete perfection and with his example he showed us that this is actually possible and it's also possible for us. So when we do the recollection of the Buddha's attributes then we should know these attributes. So the nine attributes are Arahan, Sammasambuddha, Vichacharana Sampano, Sugato, Lokavidu, Anuttaro Purisa Dhammasarati, Satadeva Manusanam, Buddha, and Bhagavan. And it's not enough only to recite these um, attributes, we also should know what they actually mean. So the first one, Arahan, this means that the Buddha is worthy of respect and veneration. Because the Buddha made an unwavering effort through countless lives to discover the path that leads to the, libera- to, um, the cessation of suffering. He undertook so much hardships in order to become enlightened, in order to become a Buddha. As I already mentioned, from the time when he got the prophecy of Buddha Dipankara, that sometime in the future he would become the Buddha, to perfect all the necessary qualities, it took him four incalculables and a hundred thousand worlds. And what this actually means, it's beyond our imagination. But just to give you some idea of what that incredible long time span is, So, one world cycle is the time that is needed to wear down a huge mountain, let's say Mount Everest, and to do so, a little bird comes every hundred year once to um, sharpen its beak on the mountain. So, when that little bird by sharpening its beak on the mountain uh, has weared down the mountain that's one world cycle. So because of his great perseverance and effort as well as his deep wisdom and great compassion the Buddha is worth of veneration and respect. Then the Second attribute, Sammasambuddha, means that he is fully enlightened by himself, or the Buddha knows all the Dhammas in the right way by himself. 
The Buddha didn't have a teacher who could show him the way to enlightenment, nor did he hear the Four Noble Truths from somebody else. While striving to discover the deathless, he discovered the most profound truth by himself. And this truth was so profound that after he became enlightened, first he hesitated to teach because he thought nobody else would understand it. But then, urged by the Brahma Sahampati, he looked around in the world and then he saw that there were actually some beings with only little dust in the eyes who could understand that. And so then uh, he started to teach. Now the third attribute is Vichacharana Sampano. And this means that the Buddha is endowed with supreme knowledge and with virtuous conduct. And supreme knowledge, this includes the, the ability to eradicate all the defilements, to um, overcome greed, hatred and delusion. And it also includes the supernormal powers that can be attained through the jhanas. And in his conduct, he was always virtuous. He, his verbal and bodily actions were always faultless. Sugato is the fourth attribute and this can either mean well-said or well-spoken or can mean well-gone. So, one who has gone well has gone to Nibbana. Or well-spoken, well-said, that refers to the way the Buddha used his speech. The Buddha used only two ways of speaking. He only said what was true and he only said what was beneficial. And actually it always had to be true and beneficial. Even if it was true, but if it wasn't beneficial, then the Buddha would rather stay silent. The fifth attribute is Loka Vidu, and this means he is the knower of the worlds. The Buddha knew all worlds. There wasn't one single place in this world or in this universe or in other universes that was not known to the Buddha. Loka, that means world, and this can be divided into three parts. First, there is the world of living beings. And so the Buddha knew all living beings in this world, in other worlds. And he knew the tendencies of these living beings. He knew their habits and he knew their sharp or dull uh, faculties. 
then there is the world of location and this includes all inanimate things such as rivers, mountains, trees, plants, lakes, etc. So the Buddha was also aware of countless other universes including the stars and the planets but the Buddha didn't emphasize this knowledge because it was not conducive to the liberation from the cycle of birth and death and then the third um, part is the world of formations and this refers to the impermanence and transitoriness of all conditioned phenomena then the next attribute is Anuttaro Purisa Dhamma Sarati and this means that the Buddha is the incomparable teacher of all beings to be tamed no one could be compared to the Buddha he was unsurpassed uh, in this world by his supreme qualities it is said that in the same way as a skilled elephant trainer can chase away a wild elephant in one direction so the Buddha could guide all beings in one direction out of the cycle of samsara the Buddha could guide the wise and the foolish the rich and the poor the intelligent and the dull-witted he all could guide them according to their mental faculties the seventh attribute is Sattā Deva Manusanam and this means that the Buddha is the teacher of the Brahmas, Devas and human beings as their teacher the Buddha pointed out the way from the fearful states of misery to the peaceful abode of Nibbāna and he showed them that it was possible to get out of samsara that the liberation of the mind and heart was not an impossible thing for them then the eighth attribute is Buddha and this means the knower of the truth or the awakened one the Buddha is awakened to the absolute truth and this can be summarized in the four noble truths and the last of these attributes is Bhagava and this means the blessed one or the glorious one the Buddha was also endowed with six kinds of glory and this were <coughs> the Buddha had complete mastery over his mind the next one was he is endowed with the nine Dhammas they include the four Magas, the four Phalas and Nibbana 
then the Buddha was famous in the three worlds and the Buddha's body was perfectly shaped and um, he was radiant and the Buddha also had always the wish to further the well-being of other beings and lastly he was endowed with great effort which kept him going and brought him to his goal of enlightenment so these are the nine attributes of the Buddha which form the basis for the recollection of the Buddha's attribute so when we do these four protective meditations we should spend a few minutes on each of these meditations and a good time to do these four protective meditations is early in the morning in our first sit in the morning so then we could start our sitting meditation with these four protective meditations that's a good way to start the day to start our meditation so then when we start we start with the recollection of the Buddha's attribute and if we know all of his nine attributes then we can go through all of these nine attributes however if we are not familiar with them then it's also enough just to pick one of these nine attributes this could be the first one Arahan or the second one Samma Sambuddha so then we would pick one of these and um, reflect about it and also repeat it silently in our mind if we pick the first one Arahan we could say Arahan the Buddha is worthy of respect and veneration Arahan the Buddha is worthy of respect and veneration or if we take Samma Sambuddha we could do the reflection with that Samma Sambuddha he is fully enlightened by himself Samma Sambuddha he is fully enlightened by himself and so repeating these words in our minds and reflecting on the meaning of these words we do this recollection for a few minutes and after that then we can proceed to the second of these protective meditations and the second one is metta bhavana or metta meditation the meditation on loving kindness and with metta meditation uh, it opens our heart and it removes the fires of anger hatred ill will or aversion and so with the practice of metta meditation we try to develop and cultivate feelings of loving kindness goodwill and benevolence towards all living beings and we try to do that to 
all living beings equally, not having likes or dislikes um, for certain beings. A heart that is fully uh, radiating with thoughts of loving-kindness doesn't know any barriers between different beings. It just radiates in all directions equally. So there is no distinction or no discrimination between um, different kinds of beings. There is no more discrimination between person we like or person we dislike or person we feel close to or person we don't feel so close to. A heart that is fully developed with thoughts of loving-kindness feels connected with all living beings. And this is based on the acknowledgement that as we ourselves want peace and happiness, every other sentient being also wants peace and happiness. As I have already spoken about the practice of loving-kindness and as we are practicing it every day, I will not say uh, more about it. You are quite familiar with it. So, when we use Metta as one of the four protective meditations, then we start developing thoughts of loving-kindness first of all to ourselves. May I be well, happy and peaceful. May I be well, happy and peaceful. And after that, we make the bridge to other living beings. In the same way as I want to be well, happy and peaceful, may all living beings be well, happy and peaceful. And then we continue with the development of loving-kindness towards all beings. May all living beings be well, happy and peaceful. May all living beings be well, happy and peaceful. And so we keep doing that for a few minutes. Having practiced metta meditation and if we are uh, if we can do it well also to a certain person or a certain group of persons, then we could do it, let's say, for a benefactor. So after having uh, developed metta for ourselves, we could do it for our benefactor or we could do it for our family. So whatever um, you are familiar with or whatever works best for you, uh, you can do it in that way. So, after having spent a few minutes on the development of loving-kindness, then we switch to the next uh, of the protective meditations. And this is the recollection on the loathsomeness of the body, Asuba Bhavana. And this reflection reduces our attachment to our body and 
leads to a more realistic understanding of the nature of our body. This reflection is like opening our skin with a scalpel and then look into our body, see what's beneath the skin. As we do this recollection, um, we can uh, reduce or discard the notion of the beauty of the body as we see the impurities that lie under the skin. So, if we can see the body in its nature, just part, different parts put together, or if we can see the body as a skeleton plastered over with some flesh and uh, some skin, then we will less in, be inclined to identify with our bodies in times uh, when there arises a great attachment to the body. For example, when we face immediate danger or when we are overcome with a strong sensual desire or when we face our immediate death. The purpose of this reflection is to get a clear understanding of the nature of the body and it's not to arouse feelings of ill will or disgust to our bodies. If we can see the body in the right light, see its true nature, then our minds will be uh, firmer, will not be uh, shaken so easily. In the Buddhist scriptures, the body is divided into 32 parts. And so to reflect about the nature of our body, we can do it with these 32 parts. And some of you may know the 32 parts, some may not know, and so I'll just um, mention them. And maybe just try to imagine um, these different parts as I'm going through them. The hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, skin, sorry, nails, teeth, skin, the flesh, sinews, bones, marrow, kidney, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestines, small intestines, stomach, feces, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, nasal mucus, oil of the joints, and urine. Mm -hmm. 
So this is what your body is consisting of. So if you are not familiar with these 32 parts, we can reduce it to, let's say, five parts. We just take uh, the first five parts and do the reflection with that. And that's hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin. And so then we would uh, repeat these five parts and at the same time uh, visualize these five parts. As we get more skillful with this uh, recollection, then we also could try to see these different parts of the body as separate from our body. Or we can try to imagine them as little heaps in front of us. So there is a heap with the hair of the head, the next heap is the hair of our body, then there is a little heap with our nails, and then we have our teeth, and next to it, our skin. And when we do that repeatedly, and when we get more skilled, and when we can do it with all 32 parts of the body, then we can imagine or visualize all these 32 parts of the body uh, as little heaps in front of us. And so, if we managed to visualize that, or get an idea of that, then seeing 32 little parts in front of us, we are much less likely to identify this with myself or my body. So, who would say that these 32 parts, that's me? But strange enough, if these 32 little heaps are put together in a certain way, then all of a sudden, it's me again, my body. Some years ago, a very good friend of me and my Burmese friend Mimi, she came to our meditation center in Mobi, the forest center, in Burma, and she came with the intention to ordain as a nun. And this friend, she had beautiful blonde hair, was quite long, and in Burma, in Burmese, there is no word for blonde hair, because in Burma, people don't have blonde hair. (laughs) And so, the way to express it, it's Uh, golden hair. And so Mimi, my friend, she thought it was such a pity that our friend was going to shave her head and to shave her golden hair. And for Mimi that was such a wonderful thing, golden hair. And so she thought that she was going to keep the the golden hair, put it away forever. And traditionally, when 
the head of a prospect nun or monk is shaved, then the hair is collected in a piece of white cloth which is held by two persons uh, below the head. And to shave the head, then the person wets the hair and applies some soap or some shampoo, so then it's easier to shave. And so, as I was shaving uh, our friend's head, then these bundles of wet and soapy hair fell into the white cloth. And by the end, when I had shaved the head, there was this heap of rather disgusting-looking wet bundles of hair on that white piece of cloth. And so then I looked over to Mimi and said, Well, now it's yours. Now take it and put it away forever. But the face was different <laughs> than it was before, and there was no more desire for her to keep that. <laughs> and so she took the white cloth and threw it and threw the hair away at the foot of a tree, as it is custom in Burma. So our attachment to the body grows out of the belief that this body belongs to us, that we are the owner of this body. Somehow the body has become an integral part of our identity, of who we are. It's part of the I. So, after having done the reflection on the loathsomeness of the body for some minutes, then we switch to the last of these four protective meditations, and that's Maranusati, or the recollection on death. Whatever is born has to die. Every life ends in death. Nobody can change this fact. And still, death is a topic that many people don't like to talk about. It's some kind of taboo or at least until one is confronted with the death of a close person, or if um, the person's own death is approaching. During our trip in samsara, we have actually died many, many times before, so death is actually no stranger to us. Actually, death is like the good old acquaintance, and for sure he will, call, uh, he will come and call us again. But we rather want to put this topic at the back uh, of our minds, and we rather continue to indulge in the tri- triviality of this world until we have to face this fact, or until we finally rot in the coffin. So the recollection on death should help us to get a more realistic understanding of the impermanence of our life. 
the fact that we have to die, the fact that we are going to die one day. And so with this recollection, a feeling of urgency arises, spiritual urgency, some vigor. And with this we can overcome our wavering and put forth all the effort and perseverance that is needed in our spiritual practice. The Buddha might try to make us understand that life is uncertain, but death is certain. We don't know the time of our death, and we don't know uh, from what cause we will die. We don't know the time of the day when we will die. And we also don't know the destination after our death. Death is some kind of a mystery that we have failed to solve so far. Although death is nothing strange, we encounter it all the time. People are dying around us all the time. We only need to open a newspaper and read the obituaries. The Buddha also said that as it is certain that our it is certain that our lives, our bodies will break up in the same way that it is certain that the pots formed by a potter will break up one day. Or in the same way that we look anxiously at a ripe fruit on the tree, uh, waiting it to fall down, so people are anxious awaiting uh, death, the end of their life. Everybody, young and old, rich or poor, the foolish or the intelligent, Everybody has to surrender to death. Nobody has managed to escape death. In the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they have the following saying, Tomorrow or the next life, which comes first, we never know. And it's only too true. Several years ago, one of my aunt, she just died like that. She was in her 50s, late 50s, and she was quite healthy and strong, didn't have any illness. But then, one morning, my uncle woke up just to find his wife dead, lying next to him. So when we do the recollection on death, we can use words or uh, short sentences like Life is uncertain, death is certain or My life will end in death or Death is sure to come one day So then we should reflect about this fact and we should uh, keep repeating these words or sentences 
in our mind and reflect well on the meaning of these words. And so, when we repeatedly reflect about this fact, it will increase and strengthen the feeling of urgency and it will also provide us with the necessary effort and earnestness in our practice. And with the repeated practice, we can come to um, fully accepting this fact of life and with that our fear of death will be greatly diminished or even completely disappear. I'd like to share um, a story about realizing the, the fact of death and it's about Ashoka's younger brother. You may have heard about the Emperor Ashoka who ruled in the 3rd century BC. Um, he was quite, uh, quite a cruel uh, emperor but he was very successful and so finally he managed to rule uh, almost all over the Indian subcontinent. But eventually he came to realize um, his cruel nature and um, he turned over a new leaf in his life. He started to embrace Buddhism and after that he actually became quite a compassionate ruler. His social welfare program, so to speak, was quite exceptional for that time and he also let people uh, practice freedom of religion, for example, and his edicts were written on stone pillars and some of these stone pillars are still, um, we still have them today. So, King uh, Emperor Ashoka had a younger brother who was jealous of his elder brother and he thought it would be nice if he could be the Emperor of India. And so he had these fantasies of how it would be if he could sit on the throne and rule over the whole empire. And he sometimes sneaked uh, to the throne room, peered inside if Emperor Ashoka was not there and then would sneak inside, sit on the throne and try to get the feeling of what it would be like to be the Emperor. And so his desire to really become the Emperor grew stronger and so he started to think of how he could overthrow his brother. He started to make plans for a coup. But as it is in palaces, curtains have ears, um, keyholes have eyes, and so the news was brought 
to Emperor Ashoka that his younger brother wanted to overthrow him. And Emperor Ashoka gave the order to arrest his brother and bring him before him. And so he said to him, My brother, your plans have been discovered and I have to punish you. You are going to be executed in seven days. And the younger brother, he became very pale, his knees started shaking, and he asked for mercy. And Emperor Ashoka then said, Well, instead of um, throwing you into the uh, prison for the last seven days of your life, your wish, you can have your wish fulfilled. You can be the emperor for the last seven days of your life. Anyway, I want to go and take some rest. I want to go into retreat. So for these seven days, you can be the emperor. You can enjoy all the luxuries that are available to the emperor. Enjoy all the nice and delicious food, all the nice dancing girls which will entertain you. But you have to stay within the walls of the palace. You are not allowed to go outside. Guards will be there and protect the gates. But within the palace, everything is yours. I'm going for retreat. And so Ashoka, King Emperor Ashoka, went into retreat and his brother became the emperor. Then, after seven days, Emperor Ashoka came back and he called his younger brother. And then he said, Well, how was it? Did you enjoy the dancing girls? Did you uh, enjoy the nice and delicious food and the sparkling wine? And did you enjoy the intoxicating power uh, of being emperor? And the younger brother said, No, no. And Ashoka then asked, Well, what went wrong? And then the brother said, Well, you know, Every time I was going to enjoy myself with the delicious food that has been served to you to me, then I would see a guard on the door with the uh, with the big knife, and then I would remember only five more days, only three more days, only one more day. So I couldn't enjoy it, and then. Emperor Ashoka said, Well, my brother, you have learned your lesson. Your execution will be called off. You are reprieved. So, after having done the recollection on death for a few minutes, then we can bring the four protective meditations to an end and then we can change 
to the Vipassana meditation. So with these four perfective meditations, we should be well equipped for our spiritual journey. We should be well equipped for the adventures that we are going to meet on our journey. With the recollection of the Buddha's attribute, we have acquired a map and a compass so that we will not lose track and that we will not lose our direction. With the practice of meta meditation, we have developed so strong feelings of loving kindness and goodwill towards all sentient beings that this is like a protection that can ward off any harm or danger which is lingering at the side of our path. And with the recollection on the loathsomeness of the body, we have reduced our attachment and clinging to our body and when we are overcome with strong sensual desire, we are not helpless victims anymore. And the reflection on that arouses a feeling of spiritual urgency and so we see the impermanence of our life and all phenomena very clearly. So even the next moment could be the last moment of our life. And with this realization we put the spiritual practice on the top of our list of priorities and assign it the place that it actually deserves. So, may all of you be well equipped on your spiritual journey and be soon released from all kinds of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.